I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. It's really good to see you all again. Thank you so much for being here. So happy to welcome Lynn Tillman tonight. Thank you for being here. It's so, honestly, so, it's so delightful. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm thrilled. Um, Lynn's going to talk about Mother Care, published by Peninsula Press. She'll be in conversation with Michael Bracewell, who is nice to welcome back after his event in January. Thank you, Michael. Um, Our guests are going to talk for about 45 minutes as usual. It'll be time for questions. The microphone will help so give me a shout if you have questions we'll get around as many of you as possible before we go a bit more informal and you can have a chat glass of wine and get some books signed um that's all from me just one more thing welcome our guests thank you both so much thank you thank you you. you. oh gosh no it's so wonderful to be doing this and um, you can tell how wonderful it is for me because um, I sit before you uh, with pneumonia um, <laughs> and which is maybe kind of setting a theme um, so I hope you'll forgive me that I don't normally do this I think it can be a bit maybe um, cold but as I don't trust my mind at the moment I've written something uh, to introduce uh, Lynn, who actually doesn't need any introduction to us, but um, uh, this is what I what I wrote, and we'll take it from there. Okay, so I've written. It has been my great happiness and privilege to have known Lynn since 1990, and during that time, she's produced an astonishing body of multi-genre and mixed-genre work across the fields of fiction non-fiction, arts criticism, and cultural analysis. Cultural speculation might describe it better. And in all of these, they reveal the acuity, wit, originality, sheer brilliance, and profound depth of feeling that go into her writing. Her fiction includes the novels Cast in Doubt, Motion Sickness, No Lease on Life, which was one of my favourites, American Genius, a comedy, and more recently, Men and Apparitions. Her shorter fiction includes Weird Fucks, 
uh, and Haunted Houses, both reprinted by the wonderful Peninsula Press, I'm happy to say. And her non-fiction includes a really extraordinary collaboration with the photographer Stephen Shaw, The Velvet Years, The Warhol Factory, 65 to 67, which, again, I can't recommend too highly. It's an amazing insight into that. You wouldn't have thought ground so well-trodden could be made so rich again. But it's a fantastic body of writing, and it can seem to contain many interconnections writing about family, about perception, about relationships, about isolation, about memory, about modern urban experience and about risk-taking. It often has the, hard, the mix of hard realism and humour that can distinguish film noir, yet Tillman's literary sensibility reaches to Europe, I feel, as much as into America, which is something I want to talk to her about. Her new book, this one, Mother Care, which we're going to talk about tonight, seems to me exemplary of Lynn's writing at its most incisive and almost brutally observational. The book is subtitled On Ambivalence and Obligation, which sounds quite 18th century, <laughs> and it's defined by the author as an autobiographical essay. It's an account of Lynn and her two sisters' experience of caring for her increasingly ill and frail mother from 1994 to her death at 1pm on Saturday the 29th of April 2006, which Lynn notes in a somehow typically Tillman-esque aside happens to be Duke Ellington's birthday. <laughs> it's a memoir that doubles as a report almost forensic in detail, that in turn doubles as a manual. I found it utterly compelling, instructive, sort of retrospectively in my case, um, but I'm sure many of you will have been through the experience it describes. So very immensely relatable, profoundly moving, but not necessarily for the reasons you might expect. <laughs> and shot through with that strangely photographic mood of a lucid dream that seems to correspond to the parallel reality when the familiar loses its familiarity that we can sometimes experience when people close to us are dying. So Lynn has very kindly agreed to begin by reading a short extract from Mother Care, it's always a joy to hear Lynn Reed because she has such an amazing voice, amongst <laughs> other things. Um, and then we'll take it from there. So, Lynn. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> so nice terribly to... excessive. Yeah, it's terribly <laughs> nice to see you. God. Lovely to see you, too. Yeah. A doctor's office can be chaotic. Your appointment is for 1 p.m. and it's 2.30 p.m. The doctor had an emergency and people forget, you forget, the doctor does, the chart is wrong, you left out your allergy to sulfur, assistants misplace forms and figuratively misplace patients. Everything seemed to me to happen all at once, both diffuse and collapsing. The tough health is issues, lack of sh surety, the sense of few or no options and possibilities Weighty obstacles can enfeeble you, and intimidation rattles the ability to meet your goals. There is no choice, really. 
but to work hard to overcome these, to be gutsy. Life doesn't proceed in an orderly way. It frustrates people who need to control every aspect of their life, who go berserk when anything changes on them. Life doesn't allow it total control, and things will go south and north every which unexpected way. We did have Mother see a different neurosurgeon and neurologist later. The best part, if I can say that, about Mother's condition was her passivity, her acquiescence. Her condition let us take charge, choose doctors, make appointments. Mother allowed us to do what was necessary. She might be very confused, might become angry, but ultimately she would do what we told her to do, what she needed to do. Mostly we went unquestioned. We sisters had to learn the hard way, many trials, many errors, one trial, mother's anxiety about time. We had to learn not to tell her about a future appointment or event. If, let's say, she was told she was going to see a doctor tomorrow, while her brain was colloquially confused, she might awaken at six in the morning. She would demand to be dressed right then, told the appointment was at 3.30 p.m. and there was lots of time, didn't matter. She wouldn't relent. She wanted to get dressed and could come close to hysteria, again colloquially, if she wasn't. Reasoning didn't work. Her anxiety was way beyond reason. You must relent and change your behavior. You placate the anxious person. Still, she would insist to be dressed and want to leave for the appointment six, six hours early. All day, until she actually had to leave with her companion, she was miserable and worried. We're going to be late, she'd say. With hours to go, she would drive me crazy. We adapted, learning to tell her she had an appointment on the morning of it. Then her anxiety didn't build up. Understanding or adjusting to a mind whose thought process is damaged is a matter of sympathy, of acceptance. Adapting to a brain that da that's damaged is hard. Your own reason is strained and tested. I didn't know what mother was experiencing, what she felt, except that her behavior demonstrated her decreased capacities and caused her alarm and stress of all kinds. Her own confused mind must have been a hell to her. Her experience of time was distorted. Einstein wrote that we have time only so that everything doesn't happen at once. I have tried to imagine days without time, calendars, clocks, and minutes and hours not there to guide me. Imagining timeless days, days indistinguishable one into the other, not knowing past from present might be what mother felt. It was all one day to her, being so out of time, unable to plan, not able to maintain her own schedule, must have been terrifying. Also, a terrific blow to her sense of self, a great wound to her pride. I think that's easy. Chapter, I think. Len, I wanted to begin um, by saying or asking, um, it's our instinct not to look at old age, suffering and death. Um, we reflexively turn away from it, and yet they're the things that we'll all encounter in one way or another. Um, the detail 
the feeling, the empathy that you get into mother care, and particularly the kind of the astonishing, um, it's almost like an inventory of an experience. It's, mm. it's, we'll get onto the actual style of the tone of the writing later, but in very simple terms, when and why did you decide to write the book? About six or eight months after my mother died, uh, it was 2007 by then, and I had finished, and Men and Apparitions had come out. No, no, American Genius, a comedy had come out. And you're sort of in that place where you're between books, and that can be a very long time. And I thought, oh, I'll write an essay, a short essay about hospitals and my mother. And I sat down, and I started working on it, and 14 pages in, very quickly, I thought to myself, why am I doing this? I've just had 11 years of this. Why am I writing this now? And I just put it aside. And I thought, I'll get back to it. And then I did, uh, after Men and Apparitions came out in 2018. So there I was, the same kind of deal. It was 2019. And I thought, oh, I'll go back to this now. And, and I did, and then COVID struck. Mm-hmm. And... Um, David and I went up to Hudson, where we have a little house, and were there, as if in a cloister, the perfect place to write this book. Um, And why did I write it? Well, for myself, in a way, there was all this stuff that I had uh, experienced, and as a way to forget. You know, you write it so you can forget. And the other thing was I had learned so much. And it's a positively confusing um, event when suddenly you have to take care of somebody who's seriously sick. And it was all so unexpected and it was so confusing. And you're suddenly just, you're just acting, you're reacting. And I really don't like to live by reaction, because, but you are just reacting to events that are, that are happening. And so I had learned something, and I thought, well, I could tell other people about this. Mm-hmm. And there were so many aspects to it that I had learned that I thought, it's information mm-hmm. on that level, so I would write it. I mean... I think it's one of the things that really surprised me when I started reading the book and which also made me read it very quickly. I mean, I just said, you know, I nearly read it in one sitting. I ended up reading it in two. And I don't want to give the game away in any sense, and I hope I'm not doing it. But there are two things that happen in the book very fast in the way you've written it, which really drag the reader in. The first is that most, you would assume a book like this, you don't know why, but you just assume a book like this was somehow going to be a sort of a a loving tribute, you know, in part a kind of, you know, remembering fondly, you know, touched with a sense of profound sadness, etc, etc. And the other thing is, you'd imagine that all of, if you want, the ugly stuff of sickness 
would be kind of either put into a sort of decent half-light where it wasn't too confrontational or would be avoided altogether. Yet with mother care, A, we learn very soon that your mother was extremely difficult, not in a kind of Alan Bennett sort of colourful comic way, but <laughs> difficult, only, yeah. difficult, yeah, and that you didn't really get on, putting it mildly. And secondly, the, the narrative tug of the book is often held together with astonishing urgency by your analysis and, and counting of drugs, of treatments, of the ways doctors talk, the way they will, you know, let you down, mess you around and things. Do you feel that, were you aware as you were writing the book that you were probably countering a lot of people's expectations of what a, a book like this or an essay like this would be like? I guess in, in, in ways, consciously and unconsciously, I write in opposition. Mm -hmm. I think that's true in most of my work. Uh, there's an expectation that I have seen acted upon in other books, and it, I wasn't interested in that fulfilling anybody's expectation except trying to be <laughs> as honest as I could be about what that experience was like, at least for me, and might be like for other, other people. Uh, going into it, I thought if I wasn't going to be honest about it in my terms, why write it? Uh, it was a very hellish 11 years. It was very, very difficult. It was not fun at all. And um, my life didn't completely stop, my own life. I mean, I continued to write. I continued to see movies or whatever. But I would say it was a kind of half-life of taking care of her or worry, being worried about her or having trouble with people who were caring for her or difficulties with my sisters. Um, so I just wanted it to be straight about it, and I'm not a sentimentalist. Mm. <laughs> uh, and those were not f the feelings I had about my mother anyway. Um, and so, uh, frankly, I don't know what people would have expected, but what I was aware of was a lack, I felt, of even a discussion of caretakers, caregivers, mm. uh, in books that I did know about, that how complicated it is to bring another person into a family's life who is there all the time. It was so different from what I, it's not a normal employee who goes home and uh, doesn't carry everything with her or is there all the time. Um, and family, not family, so confusing. Mm -hmm. uh, and I wanted to write about that mm -hmm. as honestly as it could and it, as I could. And it was mixed in the States or with race and class mm -hmm. and economic inequities. And that seemed to me to be a huge part. Mm -hmm. 
of what was going on. Because this is a, something that I wanted to ask you about, because in your account of this experience, you know, you, it inevitably raises some very big themes. I yeah. mean, firstly, I mean, there's about, well, I, there were four that are principal ones that I, yeah. that made me think. The first is that you have to take on the language of medicine. And I wondered how did you, because in some places like the, the medical and pharmacological information is very detailed. Had you kept notes? Had you, during the time your mother was ill, how, did you, uh, you know, descriptions of procedures of, you know... Of... Most of it I remembered. Some of it, uh, for instance, the... The the, descript, uh, the list of all the drugs she took, mm. I had a list of, mm. of, of those. I mean, we needed it to fill her pillboxes every mm. week and then have to know when she got what. And it was astonishing to me to see the list again, mm. looking at how many uh, drugs that she was taking. And fortunately, the doctor I call Dr. A in the book, um, her internist oversaw all the other doctors, which is, and their, the medications they were giving, so that they weren't um, complicating each other, which can be a, a huge problem. And mostly the elderly, especially, are over-medicated, mm -hmm. uh, at least in, in, this, in the states that I know of. And that can be very detrimental, mm. very, very detrimental to them. So I've always been interested in medicine anyway. And my one of the things I learned from my mother was about thinking medically. Mm. She she would have been a very good doctor. Mm. She she was she could just sort of say, you know, I remember my she knew when my father had a stroke because he just slurred a little yeah. word. She said, We're going to the hospital now, you're you're having a stroke. And that kind of thing, that awareness. And I'm interested in reading about medicine and doctors. I was very curious about the shunt, mm -hmm. although I am squeamish about blood. So mm -hmm. not as bad as I used to maybe be. Maybe because <laughs> the shunt, you know, when it first occurred quite early on in the book and this procedure is suggested by the doctor, mm -hmm. and then, you know, what seems like a kind of magic bullet turns out to be not as straightforward. No. Um, it might be a rather perverse question, but could you, for the benefit of the audience, say what a shunt is and what, why your mother had it and okay. what went wrong with it? She had a condition called normal pressure hydrocephalus, which means that there's too much fluid on the brain and it's not escaping uh, and it's blocked. So the shunt is this, I call it a gizmo, that they put... Um, they drill something, like probably a hole, and there's a tube that goes from it under the skin uh, to the stomach, where it disgorges the, the fluid, the cerebrospinal fluid. And the first operation, I mean, immediately after that first operation, she was so clear. She was lucid. It was working. But within a few days, she had a grand mal seizure. And I write a, mm. about that because the tube was too long. And it went into her stomach and it folded. 
And so everything backed up and uh, gave her this seizure, which was terrifying uh, to see her in that, in that state. Um, and then I did some research on the, on the shunt and the, as many inventions, uh, this was invented by an, um, an engineer. He was not in medical stuff, but his own child uh, was born with um, hydrocephalus and he wanted to cure him. And so I think he realized that that tube would, would help, you know, getting that fluid out. But he invented it too late for his own son who died. Usually before the shunt, which was not, didn't come about till the 60s really, if you were born with hydrocephalus, you would, you would live till about 20. And your, the skull, because as a baby, the skull is soft, it would just keep expanding. And so these people with it would have very, very large heads and they would die uh, quite young. So he came up with something that did work, but it was like plumbing. Mm -hmm. And that's what you don't realize when the surgeon puts it in, that it is like plumbing, it gets stuffed up. And she eventually had six more procedures mm -hmm. to, um, each time it began to back up because what happened was in my mother's stomach, scar tissue would form because of course it was being irritated by the, by the shunt, by the tube there. Uh, and finally, um, her last, the last time it wasn't working, her internist, Dr. A, great, great doctor, uh, said to her, we can't, put the tube, your, your surgeon can't put the tube down to the stomach anymore because it will um, just get stuck again. So the only option is for it to go through your artery here into your heart. He said, but if you get an infection and these things are easily infected or can be easily, you will die. Mm. It goes to the heart, the infection, you will die. And my mother, who was very practical, said, uh, or otherwise I'll have no life or whatever she s said it was about, she understood that she would just be a vegetable. Um, he said, yes. She said, well, then we have to do the operation. Mm -hmm. She was nonplussed. She was very courageous in that way. She wasn't afraid to die. Mm -hmm. yeah. That was the last one. Yeah. They call it a procedure. Uh, once the shunt is in place, mm. then anything else that tinkers with it uh, is mm. a procedure. Mm. I mean, it's, I mean, as I said earlier, I think it's, in, it, it's an extremely relatable book because I think for, you know, it's, it's a democracy, you know, we all at some time probably are going to have to deal mm. with this kind of stuff where you, you are suddenly in this world of decision-making, which is extremely, extremely difficult. Um, it's, I said earlier about the, the themes this unpacks, one of the other ones I found very interesting was the economics of care. Mm -hmm. Because like, you know, 
as with here, you know, there, there are occasions. I mean, it, it was interesting to because you're quite open about the fact that as a family, you were in a relatively privileged position mm -hmm. financially to be able to deal with yeah. this. But also the two or three occasions in the book where you end up in the sort of ultra-prime luxury end of yeah. medicine are the ones that provoke your greatest anger yeah. because they're useless. Yes. You know, it's just kind of basically, yes, you get nice, what do you say about the crockery for the coffee? Yes, it's perfect, yes, we were served tea, proper yeah. tea <laughs> yeah. in this yeah. hospital. This was when my mother was having this grand mal seizure. So yeah. is it fair to say that you found within this experience that you can't actually buy your way out of it? Well, Warhol didn't, did he? I mean, <laughs> he, he, he died in a private hospital room yeah. and uh, with his own nurse who didn't yeah. catch what was going on with him. Um, no, some of it is just bad luck, you know? Some of it is... The the nurses are change, are on a shift between four and four thirty, so somebody dies between that period because nobody is watching. Mm. There's a lot of stuff that can happen, um, no matter how wealthy you are. I would suppose is just it's it's so imperfect. It's um, it's so far mm. from perfect as Groucho Marx would put it. <laughs> um, and your role as the patient advocate is to counter the absoluteness of some doctors. Mm. And that's hard. And I think I, my sisters and I all had college or more uh, could speak English well, could go up to these doctors and ask questions. And I often thought about people who weren't so equipped and how they could be mistreated and how the family often is and not given answers. And my sisters and I, we would go in with questions we had and we would take notes and things like that and not always trust the doctors. Mm. No. I mean, not that you want to distrust, you want to trust. That's the thing. You want to feel that they know everything and they don't. And it's very upsetting. This is another thing and another lesson that the reader learns from this account. You know, if we look at the book as a manual mm -hmm. in one sense. I did feel that it was kind of like that in a way. Yes. And I think it definitely It's That's one of the ways it, it I mean, it works it works, a stupid word, but I mean it, it, it communicates in a, in, a, in a lot of ways. I mean, with the same thing with the economics, could you tell us a little bit about what you experienced? Because you talk about the different carers mm -hmm. that came in and also quite how, you know, if you're a modern liberal kind of person, mm -hmm. this can be quite a challenging transaction, trans yes. relationship. Could you yes. t tell us a little bit about... That's the most complicated part of this book. I mean, the most difficult part in writing that was uh, to talk about how a, a, a myriad of problems arose in relationship to having caregivers. And the one who was with, whom I call Francis in the book, by the way, no one's name is, is their name, so... Uh, 
I wasn't indicting the innocent or the guilty, but um, she, she was hired by my older sister when I was away. And I came back and met her, and she was a country girl from an island. She was a very religious woman. She was in her mid-30s but had five children because uh, she'd become pregnant when she was 15. And she came to the States uh, because she wanted to raise money to send to her children, her family, which is not unusual. And she had no background in this kind of work except that she had had five mm -hmm. children. We were her second client. Her first was basically comatose mm -hmm. from when she was there and sort of died in two weeks. So she, she, there was no, we had no evidence of any kind of background, no recommendation letters or so on. But she was very kind and sweet and, um, and she was with us for, or with my mother for 10 years. Mm. And it's one of the most complicated relationships I've ever observed and ever experienced mm. in my own way. So she was a person of color. She was an undocumented immigrant. She later became a citizen. Mm. Uh, she didn't have a high school education. Um, she, there were her, there were all sorts of problems that she had immediately finding out pretty much that her husband already took up with another woman within months of her leaving. And she was very religious and Catholic and went to church all the time. There was a church one block from the, mm. from the apartment. And I think, I think New York City, she came to love it. It was very exciting for her. Uh, when Woodstock had its anniversary, she went with her. <laughs> <laughs> you know, she was they, and, and of course they, she couldn't get back in time. <laughs> she and her friend were caught up in some whatever. <laughs> it was a Woodstock experience many years later. Um, but she was kind of really loving this New York City life. There were very good things about the job for her. She was not well paid. She was paid, and then she got paid more and more, and she had more and more time off. And as time went on, uh, but um, she was very eager to do things with my mother. I think the most important thing about her was how vigilant she was. Mm. She correctly gave my mother medication where other caregivers hadn't, and mm -hmm. doubled some medications that then made my mother sleep all the time. And mm -hmm. she, uh, my older sister, who had the most money of all of us to, to give in, would get theater tickets and all of this and musicals and they went to movies. Um, to MoMA, you know, and the because of these kneeling buses and buses that could take wheelchairs, mm -hmm. they got around the city, and Frances loved that. Mm -hmm. And she loved going out with my mother. Mm -hmm. 
and love taking her to have her nails done or a, a haircut or go to the park. That was invaluable. That was invaluable. And I will always love her for that because many people, caretaking is, and caregiving is a hellish job. Very, very difficult. And I can understand people who just fall asleep while they're in the house or something. Yeah. She wasn't like that. She really kept my mother moving, yeah. which was terrific. But then there were class issues. There were race issues. There were all these other things that she was experiencing uh, because she was suddenly in New York City and in America where there's a lot of racism, obviously, and um, where she came from. It was either um, you had an Indian background or you were black. Mm. She was of uh, Indian descent, and there she talked about, told me about the racism mm. there. Uh, but it was more intense mm. in, in America. So she experienced a, a lot of things. She had her own life. She wasn't just my mother's yeah. paid protege or caregiver. It was very complex. Yeah. I mean, that comes... It's one of of many, I was going to say several, but I think many kind of complexities within the book which engages the reader so directly because, again, of this relatable thing. One of the things that really struck me, again, because I'd sort of come across a version of it, is what in the child-parent contract how far does that go? Because, like, we have this relationship one way or the other with our parents, even between siblings. But then, as you say, when you had to do some of the caring, like what they call in the UK intimate care, you know, which is cleaning somebody and all that sort of stuff, you're very open about it. You know, you were gagging, you know, which I totally, mm -hmm. totally understood. Yeah. And I think that the way that that transaction is kind of mirrored by the discomfort of buying somebody in to take care of that stuff. Again, it, it sort of adds to the kind of manual of it. And I, I, I sort of felt like you rather lanced a boil. I was so happy when you said you gagged because I thought, thank God, because that's how I have felt in the past with, with yeah. this, you know. Yeah. Certain smells were just... Yeah. Make, I'm very sensitive to smell anyway, and certain smells would make me gag, yeah. you know. And and just, you know, for the first time cleaning my mother's vagina or the, you know, labia around or all of that, it's so strange to do that. This body that yeah. is not yours and that you in some way invade and it's your mother's body, whatever your mother has meant to you, it's... I mean, this... So um, another thing that really hit me about the book was the issues it raises around gender because, like, it's you, your two sisters and your mother. Right. So it's a very, very female yes. arena. Yeah. But then you write very... I think very touchingly about your father. We learn a bit about his life, his background, mm. you know, yeah. what he was like. We also learn about about your your mum. Did it feel to you like a this is gonna sound a bit of a 
silly question, but did it did the book seem to you to be describing a gender specific experience? Did you? Well, I, I, I didn't. I guess I didn't think of it that way as I was writing it. I mean, growing up in a family where the father is the only male yeah. was always interesting to me because my father always seemed embarrassed when we would go out to dinner and he's surrounded by all these girls and a, and a woman, you know, and it just seemed like this bevy of beauties or whatever. <laughs> and he grew up with boys. He had uh, an, an older brother and a younger brother and his father was kicked out by his mother. I mean, he wasn't allowed to live with them. And so it was the opposite experience for him. And I think being around girls all the time, uh, I think he was much better about it by the time I came along, which was quite a bit later than the other two. Um, I, and I think for my mother, uh, it was very problematic having just girls. Mm. Uh, because at least I tended, my affection was for my father, mm -hmm. um, not and not for her, for sure. And my, I think my sisters liked her, liked my father less than I did. Mm. Um, so maybe she would have benefited by having a son, mm. although God knows what she would have done to that boy. I don't, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> But um, it's gender-specific in that we didn't have male uh, mm. caregivers. And yet most her. of the doctors were male and yes. the specialists. Yes. Her neurosurgeon, yeah, her neurologist, yeah. They were, I think, almost all male. Yeah. So it's kind of a really interesting... Uninteresting is the wrong word, but it's a kind of it's quite a vivid contrast, yeah. uh, gender-wise. Yes, and she loved men, and so her physical therapist was a man and a young man, and oh, she just loved it when yeah. he would come to this, yeah. <laughs> come to exercises yeah. with yeah. her. Yeah, I, um, I just have a couple more questions because time is racing along, and I want other people obviously join in, but there were two things that I, again, things that you might, a reader might have expected a book like this, not like this, but this book mm -hmm. to have, which it, it doesn't. I was interested that there is no mention pretty much in the entire book, except as a factual detail of religion or spiritual practice or indeed any form of kind of, you know, whatever they call them these days, you know, spiritual technologies or <laughs> whatever. It's a very scientific book. It's, you know, um, is that, did, did you at any point feel that either during the experience of this with your mother or in writing the book that did religion or spiritual spiritual practice at any point? I had my psychoanalyst. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's my spiritual practice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we were not a religious family. My mother was a very decided atheist. Yes. Uh, my father was agnostic. Yeah, yeah. Um, and... Uh, 
No, I... Nobody was meditating at the bedside or smudging or you didn't, you know, all that stuff that, that people... that I noticed. No, right, <laughs> no. Because I was in, I, 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 last year for one reason or another, I encountered that, and it's interesting how, you know, even when a person is an extremist, people will import these kind of things they do because it helps them, you know, in some way. But it was, it, 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 it wouldn't have been in place in this book, I don't think. Well, it wasn't, it wasn't happening it wasn't in that happening. way. I mean, I remember toward the end when my mother was actively dying, as they call it, we had brought home with us a, a woman who was, turned out to be an emergency hospital, emergency nurse. Mm. And I was in the bedroom. I mean, we were just keeping watch. Mm. And uh, she turned my mother, and my mother cried out. Mm. And she said, I said, why are you doing this? She said, I have to clean her. Yeah. I said, well, she, there are no liquids coming from her, nothing. Yeah. And I said, and we don't want her to have any pain. That was my main spiritual practice, yeah, if you yeah. could say, you know, not. Mm. And, and this woman said to me, well, dying is painful, mm. something like that. And I knew immediately we had to get rid of her. Yeah. Uh, because that... It doesn't have to be no. like that. And uh, we had found this, that's well, in, in the book, but we had somebody who helped us get hospice mm. for my mother. And, and that changed everything so that mm. the last five days she was alive, yeah. we didn't have somebody turning her. Mm. And by then she was flat as a board. I mean, it was really... Mm. odd and she was quite stiff al mm. already mm. Mm. Um, but the crying out in pain and the thing the great thing I learned actually that everybody should know about is that you know that d the death rattle and you think oh this is the existential moment of dying this mm. is just so important, you know, James Joyce and death rattles and all of that you think of. It's unnecessary. They have something called atropine, which um, dries out. What's happening is the swallowing function when you're dying stops working. And so there's fluid gathering in your mouth, which is why there's that sound. It's not really going down. It's not an existential <laughs> whatever. Um, and so we started, the hospice person gave us this atropine. Gone. It was, the, the rattle was gone. She was not in any discomfort at all in that way. Um, the other thing I found very strange, and, well, there's a sort of, po there's a postmortem in the book, mm -hmm. what happened after she died. And I discovered that uh, I, I went to interview a number of different hospice people, nurses and, a, and a, a person who acts as a minister, a spiritual person, and so on, talks to people as they're dying. And a lot of families don't want this dying person to get morphine or anything like that because they'll become addicted. It was so horrifying to, to, to find that out. 
It's, that's in, it's, it was, it's literally, it's insane. It's absolutely <laughs> insane. This person is in pain, about to die, and they're going to be addicted. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> that's just some of the stuff I learned. <laughs> Fun facts. <laughs> Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Okay, so please, questions, anybody? Or comments. Comments, yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to thank you for your honesty about your relationship with your mother. Yeah, I just wanted to just, that, okay. The way you spoke about your relationship with your mother, you were very direct and mm -hmm. honest, and that was a jolt to read and something which has got, uh, you know, meaning for me. And um, what uh, was so shocking that was that you were able to sustain your own sanity, for want of a better mm. word, for 11 or 12 years. I, I, I mean, what did you do with your feelings of, I don't know, resentment or how did you manage that? You must have had a very good therapist. <laughs> yeah, very good. One of many or several very good ones, yeah. Um, I'm looking for tips. Yeah. Uh, I had a job to do, I felt. This is what I, I had to do. My sisters were counting on me. There, it, it wasn't... I couldn't let my feelings get in front of me. I was often very depressed in her apartment uh, when I was doing the weekend or something. Um, my friends wondered why I didn't talk more about it, you know, when I, and uh, it didn't help me to talk about it to friends, to repeat these things. Uh, talking to my analyst or therapist was more, much more helpful. Um, it was just, it was, it, was a drudge, it was drudgery. It was just what I had to do. I, uh, you know, it was like going to school when you didn't want to go to school. You just, it was something you had to do. And, um, uh, if I had loved her, I, it still would have been drudgery, but I think I would have had other, other feelings too. And I wasn't, nasty, I wasn't nasty to her. I was always very nice to her. She didn't seem like my mother much of the time, not the mother I grew up with. She had this brain problem going on. So. Mm. <clears throat> yes. Mm -hmm. Hi. 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 Um, I also wanted to say thank you for your book. Oh. Um, I had a similar experience of caring for my mum 
when mm. she was dying of brain cancer. Mm. So I think even the cover, the, the British cover of your book was <laughs> like a, a beacon when, when I, I, I saw the first press about it. Um, I, I'm a writer. Um, I wrote through most of my experience as a way of keeping myself sane. Mm. I kept a, a record of my daily mm -hmm. everything. Um, I'm not as far in my journey with grief after the fact. Um, my mom only died two years ago. Your mother died when? Two years ago. Two years ago. Yeah. Um, and so I, I was wondering if you could put some words to your experience of grief and this duration between the first time you tried to write an essay. I thought I was writing an essay too. <laughs> I, I still call it my grief essay, but I think it's going to be much, yeah. much longer. Um, yeah. And just kind of the duration of that, your experience of grief after your mom died. Um, how I have to say, I didn't, I didn't grieve for my mother okay. at all. I was just relieved. <laughs> and, but what, yeah. what was odd though, was that for a good year, I had the sense that I wasn't doing something that I should do because every, every year for 11 years, every day, there were things that I was supposed, you know, I'd feel I have to call somebody, you know, I should call my mother, no, no, she's not alive, or, you know, the doctor. I, I, I had this sense that there was a presence that I had to attend to, and I had to remind myself that my mother was dead and I was very relieved. You know, it was, uh, it was much harder for me when my father died, which was many years before, because I really deeply loved him. I grieved for him, yeah. In some ways, I, there's a way in which I still haven't stopped grieving for him. He was not around, I mean, to get personal. <laughs> he wasn't around when any my my first novel came out that kind of thing he would have been very i think happy for me thank you hi lynn hello <clears throat> um this is quite a personal question but i guess it's a incredibly personal book um going through this experience and then writing the publication are you fearful of your own mortality or do you feel like you have a plan and have put things in place to try to have a different experience um i just it seems like it was such a long period and there's no way to separate one's own mortality when when dealing with something like this i'm just curious I think, um, I think, well, I've always been afraid of dying since when I was about five years old, so that <laughs> hasn't changed. The grueling aspect of what might happen before death is very much with me. Um, and I wonder not when I'm going to die, but of what I will die. And will, what will I do? Will I... Uh, just make sure I have enough pills around if I find out that I have Alzheimer's or something also that's horrible. Will I be able to kill myself soon enough? Uh, th things like that, yes. I, I do think about it much, much, much more. And um, uh, my husband and I 
we got uh, long-term care insurance. I don't know if, if you have that the same thing in, in the UK. The younger you are, the better it is to get it because it's much, much cheaper then. Uh, but that's supposed to enable us to have better care uh, and pay people to live with you or take care of you, that kind of stuff. I can barely read the print on it. It makes me so nervous. But, you know, it's like reading any kind of form or something, I, very anxiety-producing. But yes, I, I'm way too aware of that and worried about it. I, um, you know, all the stuff you don't think about, you suddenly think about all, all the time. And I wish I did have a great plan other than just, you know, committing suicide when, uh, before it gets too horrible. <laughs> that is a plan, I suppose. <laughs> Hello. Uh, my question was a bit similar to that, so maybe I'll try and try Could and you stand up? Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, thank Hello. you. Um, this is the girl who was looking for the washroom. Um, yeah, I, I think sometimes, like, uh, illness in myself or in others can kind of render someone less than human and um, evoke feelings of repulsion and, and anger and like disgust in a really visceral way. Um, maybe how did this affect your feeling about this sort of value of, of life? And mm. <laughs> That's a very interesting question. Well, I wish every day that I were not a depressive um, because I do want to value life and being alive every day and just, um, you know, look at the world and just living as a, a, great, a great thing. And I do say to myself often, today, for instance, wherever I was earlier in the day and I was walking around certain streets in London and feel, isn't it great that I can walk around London? And I'll, I'll say things like that to, my, to myself, to feel happy in the, in the moment. Of course, I was nervous about doing this tonight, but I thought, well, it will be over. And, <laughs> <laughs> and it's a much more pleasant experience because of Michael and all of you being such a good audience. Um, uh, but yes, it, it does make me want to value being alive and being able to experience happiness more. Uh, I think it's really that kind of thing that says to you that your, your brain is wired incorrectly. You should really be able to have a different feeling. And fortunately, I've got a lot of friends and I love my friends and I like people. And being around people makes me happy. So I can spend the day inside writing or reading and then see people and I feel happier or having a good conversation on the phone with somebody. Yeah. Uh, people are friendship is my spiritual practice, I guess. Being friends with people is very important to me. That feels like exactly the right, the right place to end. Okay. Um, Lynn, thank you so much. Thank I you, think, Michael. Thank you. I think that um, 
it's funny, I was at a dinner party not so long ago, and um, I was with some people of my own age, I'm in my 60s, and these were pop people, you know, they'd kind of, they'd, they'd grown up, they'd grown old through the period of pop and shopping and boutique hotels and, you know, service industries, concierge services, you know, the whole thing. And the conversation turned towards the end of the evening to the fact that the one thing with all our, you know, micro connoisseurship of consumerism and glamour and pop and everything else that we didn't know how to talk about was this. You know, the thing that it doesn't matter, you know, if you have your freeze VIP pass, you know, you're not going to be able to dodge it. And I think one of the, other than the beauty of the writing. Thank you. Because I think, you know, there's only Chekhov who could have done some of this as a doctor and as a writer, you know? Thank you. Um, but in addition to that, I think you've done something incredibly important, which is that you've, with your honesty and your clarity, you've brought a subject we all think about but find difficult to talk about into the discussion, into the discourse. You know, we're sitting here in a room talking about stuff that, as we said at the beginning, we don't really want to think no. about. But no. you, it's an amazing book, and thank you so much. Thank you, Michael. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.